Well, hey everyone, welcome to episode 284 of F Stop Collaborate and Listen with your host, Matt Payne. Sorry for my voice, I'm currently recovering from COVID. This week on the podcast, I had a wonderful conversation with Deirdre Rosenberg, a wildlife, landscape, and conservation photographer living in Southwest Colorado. Deirdre has given up the comforts of life to live her dream, and she has pursued her passion for the San Juan Mountains and the wildlife found there with a full head of steam in a very inspiring way. I hope this week's show inspires you as much as it did me. Before we get started, I wanted to tell you again about Nature Photographers Network. It has been awesome seeing the NPN community grow over the last couple of months. There's a lot of new members who are thoughtfully and civically engaging with each other over on the critique forums. People are posting some incredible work. And there's amazing categories that you can post to, including landscape, abstract, macro, flora, nightscape, and wildlife. There's something for everyone. There's also an awesome weekly challenge every single week, which is forcing me to dive into the archives again, which I find to be a lot of fun. Lastly, there's some really great articles being written by some of the industry's best writers, including Tim Parkin, Eric Bennett, Sarah Marino, Cody Schultz, and many more. Anyways, I would love to see you guys over there. You can join NPN for just $49 per year by going to npn.link forward slash fstop. You can also get 10% off of your subscription by using the code fstop10. I hope to see you there. Okay, let's get to the show. Right, Deirdre Rosenberg, it's great to have you on the podcast. Great to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. I'm always interested in having more fellow Southwest Colorado residents on the <laughs> podcast, mostly because, you know, we have we have a shared experience just by virtue of living in Southwest Colorado. So I couldn't agree more. It's not every day you meet people who are used to the fact that some of us haul water and don't just have running water down here. Right, or that it's normal to have three jobs. <laughs> More than normal. Some of us even have six or seven. Right, and people are like, how do you do it? It's like, because I have to. <laughs> <laughs> it's an amazing way of life. Yes, yeah, well, some might disagree, but I think it's worth it. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, for people that aren't familiar with you, I would love for you to tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. So I am Deirdre Rosenberg. Um, I am a conservation photographer based out of Pagosa Springs here in Southwest Colorado. Um, My main focus is working in the high alpine with our wonderful wildlife and those magical biomes. And I live in a little tiny house on the side of a mountain with my husband, John, and our dog, Vivi. And I'm a full-time photographer which is not an easy thing to pull off here in the Southwest. But um, I try to live a really, really simple life. And it allows me to live my dreams, which is always a big part of my messaging. I love it. I love it. Yeah, I mean, obviously, we both have a huge passion for the San Juan Mountains and the not only the the animals that are there, but also just the uh, the amazing terrain and the ecology there. So I think this is going to be a a pretty good time. Oh, yeah. You don't ever meet photographers down here. So it's really cool to connect with you. It's weird, right? Yeah, it's super weird. (laughs) You meet a a lot of people who uh, like travel down from Denver to see the San Juans, but to actually meet people kind of living and thriving down here, it's very unusual. Yeah, I think it's that last part, the thriving part. People are like, I (laughs) can't figure out how to do that there. Yep. Yep. A little challenging. Yeah, for sure. Well, you know, we've definitely, we've corresponded over email a little bit and I know a little bit about you, but from what I understand, you know, growing up, you kind of split your time between two of my favorite parts of the country, the San Juan Mountains of Colorado and Northern Minnesota. And I would love for you to talk about what that experience was like and how it informed your love for wilderness. Sure. So I grew up um, between Durango and then Grand Marais up in northern Minnesota. Um, that's kind of by sh- like Ely, right? It is. It's further north and further west. 
Um, okay, yeah. Right on Lake Superior. And yeah. I'm sure that that all comes through in my accent a little bit as we get talking. Um, I was definitely raised in a not very traditional sense where my parents really, really, um, they gave me an outdoor education where I wasn't really one to participate in school too much. And I spent a ton of time outdoors and it really influenced the whole entire trajectory of my life, I guess you could say. Um, if I wasn't running around trying to find wolves in the woods, I was down in Colorado learning how to ride horseback or playing up on alpine tundras while my parents summited 14ers and did all that kind of stuff. Um, so it really, really gave me a strong sense of home in the wilderness and a strong sense of safety. Um, as I got a little bit older, I was kind of forced to go to school like you are. And um, that didn't sit well with me. And I always found a real reprieve out in nature. And it really became home to me and just the strongest sense of the word. And I always knew that my life would be deeply revolved around nature and wildlife in it. And, um, and here I am. So it was always always really cool to grow up between two very different but very rugged wildernesses. Right. You said something just now that sparked more interest in me. You said that it you developed a sense of safety around being in, <laughs> in nature. And I don't think it's very common that you hear people say something like that. And I was hoping you could tell, tell us a little bit more about what you mean by that. I always have um, been a really solitary human being. I've really, um, really enjoyed relying on myself to handle my problems, um, whether they be mental or physical or what have you. Um, and I find that in nature, I've always been able to find calm and quiet um, contemplation comes very easy in the natural world for me. And I don't have the distractions that I have when I'm in towns or cities of people walking by, of bright lights, of loud noises, of all these things. I've always found, even in the harshest natural environment, I feel a lot safer and protected compared to being around people and noise and lights. And so by being introduced to nature as a very young child and this concept of wilderness as home, you just develop this sense of it's safe there. And even the scary things, there's a reason that they're scary, but you learn to deal with them and then they just become safety nets. Right. Yeah. No, the word that came to mind for me was comfortable because people are always asking me, like when I'm in the mountains, like, how come you know what that is? And how do you know how to get from there here to there? And you don't even have a map. And it's like, <laughs> I, I grew up doing this stuff. I don't know what to tell you. It's just part of who I am. Isn't it amazing? It really is something special when you have that relationship with nature. And I watched a handful of your YouTube videos and it's I'm sorry. so apparent. <laughs> no, it's wonderful. It's wonderful to see that you can have an attitude in nature other than grand adventure and excitement, but you can have normal human emotions in the outdoors that I feel like that's never represented well. When you look at people's social medias or videos, it's always these bigger concepts. But I feel like when you are raised in the outdoors, you're allowed to just be a normal human being in the outdoors. And I think that's really cool. Oh, thank you. Now, that's very interesting that you noticed that because um, I actually <laughs> had never really thought about it before. And now it's got me wondering all kinds of things about myself in terms of why I react so strongly to people that are so extreme with their, you know, their <laughs> hype and their, the way they hype things up in their videos and things like that. So maybe there's something yeah. to what you're saying. I think that there is. I think that there might be. <laughs> <laughs> well, we don't have to talk too much about that. But, um, you know, you self-identify as a conservation photographer. And I would love for you to tell us uh, what that actually means to you. Sure. So to me, being a conservation photographer has come down to one main thread, and that is getting people super stoked about nature, whether that be 
landscapes or animals or kind of what have you, um, just something that they can attach to, to get really, really revved up about the outdoors because people will absolutely do what they can to protect what they love. And so if you can get a little kid being like super excited about the American Pika, they're going to show their friends the American Pika and they're going to kind of, if they have any kind of life like I did, it's going to inform a lot of choices that they make growing up and probably do some good for that animal. Um, the second thing is that I always am super aware that conservation really needs money. And so everything that I do, I give back to nonprofits and to conservation groups trying to make a difference. Um, on my website, I have a ticker that counts in real time how much money I've donated to conservation efforts. Um, and I think it's just one of those things where you got to put your money where your mouth is at a certain point in this kind of realm. And so for me, that comes down to getting people really excited and to coffin up as much money as I'm able to. So if I were to boil down what you said, it would be that your mission is to get people as excited about wilderness and nature as you and I are. Uh, with the hopes that that will translate into them uh, having a personal connection to it and a passion for it and wanting to protect it. And then therefore, hopefully they will part with some of their hard-earned money to help do that. You've got it exactly right. That I think is really, um, really what makes a difference. I think so many people can take a really pretty picture or really um, a photo that pulls emotions out of people and makes them kind of fall in love with things. But unless you have that financial support, it's really not going to do a whole hell of a lot for anybody as far as conservation is concerned. So that's exactly right. Make people fall in love, and then hopefully they're going to give some money to what they've fallen in love with. So what does that look like when, you know, the nuts and bolts of it? Because one of the things that I have been struggling with um, over the last two or three years with my own photography is I recognize that I have this passion and excitement for the, for nature and the wilderness and the outdoors. And I hope that it translates in my images, but I also don't necessarily always couple it with, you know, like an ask or anything like that. So I'm curious for you, what does that look like in your work? So for me, um, every single thing that I sell has a built in percentage that's going to automatically be donated to conservation. Um, so even if, um, if someone signs up for one of my workshops, there is a very clear charge that I add where it says, if we're going to be going into the Alpine, I'm charging a hundred extra dollars that just immediately goes into the pocket of a group like Rocky Mountain Wild or the San Juan Mountains Association. Um, but there's going to be a hundred dollars going to some organization that's doing something good for these mountains. Um, likewise with my books that I put out, um, it's always 10% right off the top is going to be going to some organization that I've chosen that piece makes money for. And it seems like people are really good with it. I've never, ever had anyone take issue with it or ask for, can we not do that? It's always appreciated because they don't know how to help and money speaks. It's the easiest way. I love that. So along those same lines, how does the work that, that you're engaged in with your photography differ from what most nature and landscape photographers are typically engaged in, in terms of the goals and your approach to capturing your subjects? It's really important for me um, to put in a strong effort into the locations that I shoot at. And it's important to me to work with wildlife that is not habituated um, to humans, or at least as little as possible. Um, I think there is a rugged nature that is forgotten about the mountains. And my aim is always to capture that. Um, there's a something so wild about wildlife that potentially has never seen a human being before. And I don't, I don't get the same gratification making photos of a landscape 
a thousand people have seen versus there's a select few people who have put in the physical training and effort to haul telephoto camera gear into this location and to experience this surrounded by these animals. And the lighting might not be perfect and the conditions might really suck, but the moment of it and the story that goes into the whole situation is so incredibly important to me. And I think um, especially being a woman in this field, being able to tell these stories from a different perspective has been really fundamental into all the work that I put out. I love that. I Recently, I was in a conversation uh, on Discord with some photographers about my personal preference for appreciating landscape photography that I know required significant uh, physical effort, required significant um, knowledge about an area, like, and it's not because it, it's a better, it's not because it's a better photograph, right? It's because I know mm-hmm. that that photographer cares enough to go through all of that effort and that, you know, put themselves through that physical stress and emotional stress and time <laughs> to pull it off. And to me, you know, especially if it's an, an area in Colorado that I know really well, I'm like, okay, you, you've got, I, I see what you're doing there. You know what I mean? It's like, uh, there's something to be said for images that are taken that require that effort. Oh, yeah. I think if people knew how much crying happens between my <laughs> photos that I put out, it would be shocking. I I mean, some of these locations, you know, just getting up into Vestal Basin is so incredibly difficult. There are so many places out here that are like the classic Colorado shot. But if you actually consider the effort that it takes to get there, it's just like, it's mind blowing. And yeah, cry a lot on expeditions. It gets really hard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. But, uh, you know, it's, um, do you, do you find that you have more of a, a personal connection to that type of work that you Oh my create? gosh. It's, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. And I think, um, when you're facing those extremes and both physically and mentally, it really, whether you know it in the moment or not, it's incredibly healing just to the human condition and to the spirit. And you really, really realize what you're made of. And there is something to be said for that alone, just to know that you pushed through something really hard and um, that that not many people are going to do that and that there's something to be said for the effort alone. And so when you're able to create beautiful images out of that and have a beautiful story to back it up, it just, it really is powerful. Totally agree. Well, I have to admit, I'm quite jealous about the project that you're working on here in the San Juan Mountains. Can you tell us about it? Yeah. So this is kind of maybe like my life's project. Um, This might be the biggest thing that I ever commit to in my whole life. Um, And that is to- Is your husband listening? (laughs) He's in the other room. I made him wear headphones. (laughs) No, but I mean, like, he's not going to get jealous of the mountains, is he? No, he loves it. (laughs) He's my number one supporter. He loves it. Uh, I was just kidding. Yes. I um I'm documenting every square mile of the San Juan Mountain Range. Um and if anyone knows about the San Juan Mountain Range, it is super super big and it is super rugged. Um I really have had to get my mountaineering skills to a place that I've been extremely uncomfortable with in order to take on this project and I have had to uh, do helicopter rides through the mountains that I feel like are not super safe, but they're important. And it has been really quite an extreme process. Um, so far, I have stuck to the Silverton and Pagosa regions of the Wemenuch, which is one of the bigger wildernesses in the United States. And I'm hoping that next year I'll be finished documenting the Wemenuch. And then I can start moving on. Um, I'm hoping to get up into Telluride um, that for the following set of documentation. And this was supposed to be a five-year project. And pretty quickly, I realized that it was going to take much longer than five years. 
because I can't do all of it um, from a helicopter. I can only do bits of it from a helicopter. And I can't do almost all of it with a drone. I thought I would be able to do a little bit more with drones, but because so much of our area is wilderness, um, you just, you have to be um, doing it by ground, which means I am going to be summiting a ton of mountains that are unnamed with no trails. And it is absolutely marvelous. That's funny. I, um, 20, was it two years ago, I climbed to the top of uh, Gilpin Peak just so that I could launch my drone from up there because it's outside <laughs> of the wilderness boundary. So yeah, I totally appreciate the, what you're trying to accomplish. Oh my gosh. It's been, I've been doing so much mapping to try to figure out where exactly I could legally uh, launch my drone. And it's, it's pretty pitiful. I'm not, I mean, I'm very grateful for it. I love that we have wildernesses and that you can't fly drones in them. But when it comes to a project like this, it would cut the time in half. Absolutely. And um, so I've been looking at all the high peaks I can get to, to launch a drone from and exactly how far I could fly my drone and still keep it legal. And it's just like, I don't even know. Like, I don't even think it's worth using a drone very much. So yeah, I have a, I have a photo that I've been scouting on Google earth of um, storm King at sunrise, but you know, it's like deep in the women each. And I've figured the only (laughs) way to really get to pull it off would be to go to like hunchback pass and like hike up just random, you know, 12,000, 13,000 foot area launch yep. from there. But yeah, yep. it's, <laughs> it's rough yeah. for, I was really lucky. Um, I, I was part of a documentary that came out to film with me um, back in May and they actually paid for a helicopter to take me wherever I wanted to go for three hours. And it was amazing. We got to fly over Chicago basin. We got to fly all over the place. Um, And it it was just these views that I couldn't have even fathomed. And yeah, yeah, that really helped me accomplish my Wemenuch goals. I bet. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) what is it like 600,000 acres or something like that? It's something like that. And it's, it seems like it's growing every few years as ranchers are donating land and all that kind of stuff. So always changing. Yeah. So what is your, what is your the ultimate goal of that project? What are you hoping comes out of it? So the ultimate goal, um, the more selfish goal, is that I want to put out just an absolutely kick-ass, super beautiful photography book, um, kind of explaining my journey through the San Juans and what they mean to me. Um, the other goals would be to donate the full catalog to the San Juan Mountains Association to any, basically any San Juan um, mountain kind of museum that might want it for their archives, to the Wilderness Society, basically to just allow future generations to see what these mountains were, because they're changing so quickly with development and climate change. And so it's really just a full documentation for future generations to see something truly wild and truly rugged and something that very likely will never exist here again as they are now. Yeah. Yeah. I remember the the first time I spent any time in the San Juans, I was seven. My dad and I climbed Sunshine and Red Cloud. And one of my favorite memories from that was all of the marmots and you call them pika. I call them pika. We're probably both wrong. I don't even know. You're probably right. I don't even know. But, you know, if people don't know what we're talking about, they're like this tiny little... They're actually related to rabbits. They're oh, legs. See, I don't even know. <laughs> they look kind of like a super cute mouse, but... Yeah, um, like little hamsters. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But they're amazing. Um, yep. And uh, one of my favorite things about them is uh, they make this sound, like this high-pitched chirping sound whenever you get close. <laughs> To let, to let, probably to let their buddies know that someone's in the area. Um, but I, we used to call them cheer, our cheerleaders when we'd climb mountains because, because <laughs> they'd always kind of cheer up the mountain. But um, I understand that you're working on a on a research project about about them, and and I was curious, um, what is it about the pika? 
uh, that's drawn your interest and what is your goal with, with that work? So my work with them um, began kind of before they were like a well-known species. I think Instagram has really done them a favor as a species. Um, they've become like a cute little mountain ambassador. Um, <laughs> but, but I basically grew up with them and I grew up so much on alpine tundras and in talus fields that um, I just, <laughs> yeah, like you, so you know exactly. You kind of just grow up with them and you take them for granted and they're just cute little mountain friends. Um, and then I learned that they're in terrible trouble because of climate change, because of how incredibly well adapted they are and how they've evolved to live in these alpine weather systems and biomes that have really freezing cold weather. Um, and alternatively, they need a ton of snowpack to insulate their homes during the winter. And we're not getting that snowpack anymore. So they'll freeze to death over the winter. Um, and so when I learned that it kind of shifted from mountain cheerleaders, cute little mountain friends that I love to, oh my God, like these animals were a really big part of my life. And I can't imagine future generations not experiencing that because of climate change. And so um, my project was initially to bring awareness to these animals and just to like what we talked about earlier in the show, just to kind of get people really revved up and excited about how cute they are. Um, but then I realized that there was no research being done on them and at least not a lot of research done out in the field, out in the mountains, in these pika colonies that are extremely hard to access. Um, and so I started working with the University of Arizona and a couple biologists around the country who more or less worked out of labs and out of offices to share my field notes with them and to get specific observations on behaviors. And that work has really just amped up kind of as um, people have taken a bigger interest in PICAs as an indicator species for climate change. I love that. Yeah, and I think you're right. They um, they definitely have benefited from some Instagram love over the years. Uh, but it's interesting to me that not everyone then takes it the next step to learn about them, learn that they're potentially endangered. Apparently, they're not even an endangered species yet, but probably should be. Mm -hmm. I, I read recently that uh, they used to be pretty prolific in the Great Basin, like over in Nevada and that part of the country and they're pretty much gone from there now um, for the most yeah. part. So it's really amazing. There are a few key pockets where their numbers are just dwindling. The same can be said for some of the Sierra um, where there used to be these big massive colonies and now there are none. And um, right kind of below where we live down in New Mexico, there's um, traditionally their range has gone pretty far south in New Mexico, kind of to the southern reaches of the Rocky Mountains. And um, the wildfires over the past couple of years have just absolutely decimated those colonies. Um, and so where we live, thankfully, is one of the places where they've really been thriving. And I'm sure you see them on every hike you go on and you hear them on every hike you go on. Um, but that isn't the case in so many places where it used to be the case. Yeah, that makes sense. And it is definitely unfortunate. I'm curious, what is your approach to capturing them in a way that excites people beyond, oh, isn't that cute? And oh, that makes for a nice Instagram photo. <laughs> I think a big part of it is... Um, that I'm willing to give it time, like people give to like the big apex animals. Um, where I'll sit in a pika colony for eight hours, 10 hours. I'll sit there for 24 hours. If I need to pitch a tent in the talus field, I will. Um, I've started implementing cam traps so that I can kind of pull out that curiosity that they all have where they can approach the camera on their own terms. And um, it kind of, I had started sharing from more of like a children's storytelling perspective where this is Ben the Pika and like, here's a day in his life. And that got old so fast for me that it kind of had to switch gears or it's just like, no, like these are like actually really, really smart, intelligent little animals. 
Um, and I'm just going to let them be curious and I'm going to give them the time that you would give so many of these huge animals, you know, grizzly bears and moose and kind of what we think of when we think of wildlife photography. Um, when you give small animals that time, you pull out the same kind of emotions and personality that you would in bigger species. And I find that people really connect with the curiosity of pikas, especially. I uh, actually saw on Twitter today a very relevant post of an article uh, about uh, photographing wildlife. Um, and a friend of mine, uh, you might know her, Sarah Marino, um, she kind of posted this article and kind of her comment was that unless I know the photographer has ethical practices, my only reaction is usually sympathy for the animal. And I'm curious for you, what is that? How does that translate into your work and how you approach uh, your, your photography? I really love that. I really relate to that as well. Um, I think in my photography, um, I think a lot of people would have a lot to say about how much I crop my photography where wildlife is concerned. Um, I shoot with a 500 prime almost all of the time. So just um, that in and of itself means I'm keeping a pretty respectful distance, especially when we're talking about really small animals. Um, but any time that you see a really tight shot of mine, that doesn't mean that I got really close to that animal. That means I cropped in my photo really super tight and I just took a really sharp photo to begin with. Um, I think people um, have a tendency to think because an animal is curious that that means that it wants you to approach it or that it's comfortable being approached or that for some reason you walking in its habitat doesn't make a difference to it. Um, but these things impact animal behavior greatly. Um, even where little animals are concerned, they behave completely different when you encroach in their territory or when they're experiencing dismay because there's a giant standing right next to them. Right. Um, so, I mean, I think um, it's always really important when you're spending time with these animals to... Um, also keep your food packed up. You can eat when you're done dealing with them. Um, it's amazing how quickly pikas and marmots and weasels can come steal snacks. Um, and when you're dealing with big landscapes with so much color and pattern and texture, it can be really hard to keep your eye on every single thing happening. And so it's important that when you're there, you are being super respectful and putting the animal first, which means putting yourself second, um, which is important. It's important if you want to get really natural behavior going on. And usually that makes for better photos. Yeah, you, you said earlier um, that it's important to you to photograph animals that are actually in the wild and aren't habituated to human contact. And I was curious if you could expand upon that a little bit in terms of why that's so important. Sure. So the best example that I have is that it's really super easy to go drive up Mount Evans and hang out with mountain goats. And what you're going to see when you do that is mountain goats that are completely used to people and not just used to people, but used to people um, behaving poorly around them. And you're going to see animals licking uh, pavement and trying to lick cars and becoming aggressive where they otherwise would be very peaceful and docile. Um, and so it's what you're seeing might be very magical and very intriguing and exciting to you. But if you've experienced these animals in a natural habitat where they don't see humans very often, their behaviors are going to be completely different. It's going to be a 180 compared to what you're used to experiencing. And um, I like the way that animals behave when they're just being animals and when they're kind of either completely ignoring me because I'm another animal too, or they have a little bit of curiosity, but they're very standoffish because we don't know what this person's going to do. Um, it allows them to just kind of live their lives and, um, and yeah, their behaviors are totally different. You realize that animals are a lot more like humans than we tend to think that they are 
when they don't feel like they need to be defending their babies or protecting their babies, but instead they're helping their babies grow and learn, you see a much more nurturing parent. Um, you see a lot more um, flirtatious situations with animals, a lot more um, precious situations that are fleeting. And that's just so special to me to see these private little moments in the lives of animals that I'm not interrupting, but observing from a very far distance. Yeah, and a couple things I'd add on to there. One is um, typically animals that have been habituated or feel comfortable around humans, they're going to be at a higher risk for dying because they become yeah. accustomed to, to being fed by humans or being dependent upon human behavior. And so that can be dangerous. Um, and then also try to do you a solid. There's probably seven listeners who that listen and they're like, I love driving up to Mount Evans to photograph <laughs> the mountain goats. And I don't think you were trying to imply that that's like you're, you're a bad person because you do that. But maybe it's maybe it's like, OK, start to think about why you're seeing some of these behaviors mm -hmm. and what is some of the potential negative impacts of what you're seeing in the field. Oh yeah. And that, and I never mean to be negative. I know for some people just the access is what makes it possible for them to ever see these animals. And that's really important too. Um, I, so I lived for a time up in the front range up in Idaho Springs and, um, and Mount Evans was awesome until I started experiencing animals in the wilderness, which I, um, you know, I had as a child, but I hadn't really put much thought into what was actually going on there and what what people's behaviors in these more common places were doing to animals and um and another thing with like Mount Evans and just kind of the whole I70 corridor and up in Yellowstone just these really common wildlife places um I will never forget the first time that I saw a giant bighorn sheep ram get hit by a car and die and it's too much. Um, and as humans, we need to take some kind of responsibility for the way that these animals um, are completely habituated to humans in our cars and the way that we handle driving our cars in these places. And um, the amount of these gorgeous animals that are hit by cars and killed, it's just like phenomenal numbers at this point where like, I think traffic deaths are one of the leading causes of these really amazing animals. And you even see it up on Mount Evans where people have hit mountain goats. And it's just kind of like, how is this happening? The speed limit is 10 miles per hour. Um, it, and it's so, yeah, I think kind of I take a really holistic approach to my wildlife photography and I don't like roads to be a part of that um, just because of what it implies for the safety of these animals in so many different ways. You know, at the, at the risk of sounding woke, I'm going to say <laughs> something here. Um, you know, I think the more you study climate change and the impact that it's having on the environment and on the landscapes that we love to photograph and the animals that we love to photograph, it can be a pretty disheartening um, state of mind, at least for me, in terms of trying to be positive or, you know, have a positive outlook about photography or, you know, being in the wilderness. And And I'm curious, how do you take the knowledge that you have about what's happening and try to stay positive and have a, without having a negative impact on your mental health? It's really hard. It's something that I struggle with almost every day. And I think, I mean, just living in the San Juans alone, I think you probably can relate to that. Every single human caused fire that happens, every single, every single like rule breaking of leave no trace, it all is so connected to what's happening with climate change. Um, and there are so many days where it is super hard to roll out of bed and feel anything but super sad and super, super like, um, like it's all really hopeless. Um, but I try to always look at the positives. There are some things that are happening now that are the best they've ever been. Um, solar power makes me hopeful. Uh, the future generations make me super hopeful because they seem to really care. 
and they are coming off of the knowledge we've kind of gleaned about everything. So they've got one in their back pocket already. You know, they they kind of are going to be taking charge, and I'm excited about that. Um, I think as access has opened up to some of these places, that might not be the best for the planet, but it is really good for getting future stewards involved with what might become their highest passions in life. Um, as they choose a career path. But yeah, if you would find me on Reddit and see my posting history, you would see how depressed I get about all this stuff because it gets really dark. But it's just, I think it's a practice to stay positive and it's a practice to stay hopeful. And uh, if we all lost hope, conservation would be gone. So that's kind of all we have at this point, And it's so important. Yeah, I struggle with it. You know, it's... You feel like you're you're fighting in a hopeless battle, but yep. you know what else? If you don't if you don't fight for your values, I mean, what what else is there to fight for? So, and that's kind of the truth of it. Um, and I know I've I've worked with a few organizations that you know it's almost like why are you an organization? Why are like how do you have hope to be doing all of this? And you know, so much of it boils down to that. Um, what else are you going to do? You know, we have one life and these are their values and these are their passions and they're going to go down fighting for these things. Even if it makes no difference, it's worth the fight. And I think um, that really is the gist of it, that if you really love it and are passionate about it, what else are you going to do? It's worth the fight. Absolutely. Well, switching gears a little bit, uh, why has it become important for you to help other women get into the outdoors and what is your approach for helping other women in this way? So I have realized in the past 10 years, I'll say, how much nature and the outdoors has just saved my life in so many different ways. Um, and that became the most imp- uh, most noticeable to me, I'll say, um, in 2019 when I had uh, two consecutive miscarriages. Um, it was just the only thing I could do with myself to completely immerse myself into nature and to go really, really hard into the mountains and into solitude in the mountains. And I realized that that saved my life and that I don't, I don't know how any of these women handle these kinds of despairing moments um, without something like nature. And so it's become incredibly important for me to kind of lead by example and to talk about the hardships that I have faced and how I've faced them um, and to be just incredibly cognizant of how lucky I have been that my whole entire life I've had a safe place in nature. And so um, I have for the past two years now, um, every year I take on a handful of mentees where um, either virtually or in person, it's a little bit harder to get people in person down in the San Juans, <laughs> right? Um, <laughs> for sure. But I um, I take on um, mentees and I teach them everything I can teach them about um, nature in the mountains, from uh, day hikes to backpacking to winter camping, anything that they want to know. I very likely have a background in. Um, and if they want to know about photography, I'll teach them about that. But I basically, um, have open calls a couple times a year to just say, Hey, I have this much time per week that I will dedicate to you in order to, uh, get you outside and get you feeling really confident in that so that you can inspire other women, other girls to do the same. Um, and my husband has a company, um, it's a little gear company, and it was really important for us to give back. Um, and so we also have a women's scholarship through his company where um, once a year we send somebody on a trip of their dreams into the mountains. And oh, wow. that has been super rewarding. That's awesome. That's yeah. really cool. And I'm, I'm guessing that that giving back in that way has really also helped you regain that sense of purpose as well. It has. It's um I just I think it has helped me acknowledge my own gratitude for what I was given in this life. 
which was just such a safety net from wilderness and nature and solitude. And it's amazing how um, women are taught that these things are so dangerous, where it's like, why aren't they dangerous for men if they're dangerous? If they're so dangerous, they'd be dangerous for everybody. And so, so much of it comes down to just instilling confidence in who we are as women um, and giving those really foundational basic skill sets. And it's amazing to watch people excel in every aspect of their life because they're able to excel in the outdoors. You said a lot there about gratitude, and I was curious uh, what role gratitude plays in your approach to photography. I think it is the foundation of all of it. Um, I'm just happy to be here. Um, you know, that living in the San Juan Mountains um, full time, it was my whole entire life goal. I thought that I was going to be able to do it when I was retired and like 60. Um, and so, I mean, I'm grateful just to be here. And I, every single time that I look out my window, I see the mountains and it's, how do you not feel grateful for that? And, um, yeah, I think if people take away one thing from looking at my photos, I think it's a sense of gratitude and love. And it's just cause that for me is all it comes down to is just, I'm here and I, could not be more grateful for that. Beautiful. Uh, well, shifting gears one more time, I'm curious uh, if you could tell us what it means when you refer to photography as honest. Sure. Um, so kind of going back to being grateful to be here and my love for these San Juan mountains, um, there are things in these mountains that aren't so beautiful. Um, things like our beetle kill, things like our, I mean, when you go over to Creed, the wildfire damage that's been done, um, there are a lot of really ugly things in these mountains. And I think when I talk about honest photography and my photography being honest, um, a lot of that boils down to representing those things. Um, I'm not gonna be the photographer that busts ass trying to find beautiful groves of aspen over in Telluride every single time because they haven't been burnt to the ground. Um, I am going to show the San Juan Mountains for all that they are. And a lot of that isn't stuff people necessarily want to see. Um, I know a lot of people think when they're looking at our beetle killed trees, like what's wrong with those trees? Are those all nests in those trees? That must be like a health, healthy eagle population. And it's just like, no, like, no, those are super dead trees and they're killing all the other trees. But that's kind of what it is. And it's really important that we all know what that is and that we talk about it. Um, I've even heard of people kind of editing beetle kill out of their photos in order to make a more presentable photo. And, um, and that's just over editing is something that I'm passionate about not doing. Um, and that means sometimes I miss the mark with lighting. And sometimes I don't have perfect photos, but they're really honest. And they're really true to what this region is. And the ruggedness that is the San Juan Mountains. Um, and as as these mountains change and as the forests change, I just think it's really important to capture them as they are because this might be the best that it gets. And I think to intentionally try to hide that or manipulate that is doing a disservice to the future of what these mountains are. Interesting uh, that you brought up aspen trees because um, there's actually a lot of really big stands of aspen near Telluride that wouldn't exist if it wasn't for um, clear cutting and forestry. <laughs> so I, isn't like, that interesting? <laughs> it's like not all a good thing that aspens <laughs> are in these huge areas because it usually means something else happened first that yeah, was maybe something, destructive. Something totally terrible, the worst wildfire of all time. Yeah, it. Uh, that's how it is um, right now. If you've ever been over in Pagosa, um, kind of up the Hope Creek Trail area, all that burnt down and all the aspen are starting to come up and they're just now old enough where they're starting to be like bigger. And that's going to be one hell of a grove. That's going to be stunning. But it's just kind of like 
It's really important to capture it now, though, as it is, because that's where these Aspen are coming from. And there's a bigger story to tell there. Yeah. And it's not all negative, right? I mean, it's it's interesting how adaptable nature has become in terms of, you know, these horrific things happen, but then it also paves way for something else interesting to take its place. Yep. Um, and it it really shows how uh, nature is in charge. Like nature is going to do its thing. We're just kind of this yucky little blight on nature, but nature will be okay. Yeah, I'm actually in the process of reading a really great book. It's called The Brief History of Humankind. Oh, I've um, heard of that. Yeah, it's it's really good, but it basically I'm just, I'm just done with the first maybe third of it, uh, maybe fourth of it, and it's all about the history of humankind from like when we from when Neanderthals went extinct to the dawn of the agricultural era, and time and time again, what has happened in our history is that when humans uh, migrated from one place to another. Like, for example, when we migrated to Australia for the first time, within a thousand years, all of the megafauna, which is like these giant mammals, they all went extinct because we killed them all because they were easy to kill for food and all of that. So no matter where we go, we just have this massive, you know, like 75% of all bird species die within a thousand years whenever we should roll up. So it's just human, wild. Humans are, we're messed up, man. Yeah. We really have a problem. We really need to get our shit together here. It's, it's funny to think about just how long we've been doing our thing. And like, we all want to act like this is all so new and like we're shocked and appalled at our behavior but it kind of is just human nature at the end of the day to some extent. That's really interesting. Yes. I'll need to read that book. Yeah, I'll put a link to it in the show notes. Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, we've only been an agricultural society for 20,000 years or something. So it's, mm -hmm. it's not that long. No, it's not. I was even just reading the other day. They like had just figured out that humans have only been able to handle dairy for under 5,000 years or something like that. And it was because of like massive um, food shortages. And so we started drinking animal milk and eventually adapted to that. But like just even that alone is so incredibly recent. It just, we're new. We have no idea. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, I could go down that dark tunnel for a while but um <laughs> me too <laughs> i am curious though you, you talked a little bit about honest photography and you know listeners of the podcast are probably already either like super excited that we even talked about it or they're rolling their eyes um because <laughs> it does come up a lot but i am curious though when you see photographs of some of your favorite places in colorado being misrepresented in terms of editing and things of that nature like what kind of reaction do you have to that Oh, it, uh, it depends on the photographer, I guess. I would say there's a lot of sh talking between me and my husband, for sure. Um, it's it's hard to avoid that. Um, I, I've gotten to a place where like the frustration and like, I don't know, it's not pettiness, but it's just like pointless to feel super negative about it. So it's kind of like, I try to laugh more and eye roll about it. Um, it used to really frustrate me just because, I mean, some of the things you see are just like, it literally doesn't look like that. Like there's, it doesn't look like that. And um, now it's kind of just become like, okay, like maybe this person's artistic vision of this is more important than what it looks like. And we'll say that's how it looks in that photo. And uh, it's, it's hard to avoid it. And I feel like so much of it is edited that way or captured that way um, because of just the instant gratification of social media and reshares and all that kind of stuff. But I think that there's like this whole movement of people trying to push what like things really look like. And I think that's really catching on and people are appreciating that. And so, yeah. I try to not let it frustrate me too much. Yeah, well, that's that is definitely the healthy approach. What do you think of it? Oh, I mean, you know, it's it's definitely frustrating, especially if it's a place that I'm very passionate about. I mean, it's like 
it's, it'd be like if someone took a photograph of your kid and made them half the height and twice as, <laughs> you know, whatever. Yeah. It's personal. And so, um, but I, I try not to take it personally mm-hmm. uh, and I try to understand what the motivations might be. And, you know, I keep coming back to some of the same stuff you're talking about in terms of social media and that instant, instant wow factor and things of that nature. Um, but yep. um, yeah, I'm not really f- frustrated about the images themselves so much as I am the way that people kind of backpedal and like are dishonest about the depiction or the caption that they pair with the photo and then the reactions that they have when they get asked about it and things like that. So yeah, definitely that I actually encountered a situation like that the other day where somebody somebody had said something about a photo that I knew wasn't true and it took a lot for me to bite my tongue. But at the end of the day it's just like, oh my gosh, like that person does not have the same goals. And so what I feel like would be how they would respond isn't going to be how they're going to respond. And it's just going to frustrate everybody. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. All right. Well, wrapping things up, we've got a couple more questions for you. First one is, um, would love for you to tell us a little bit about your upcoming film that you've called For the Love of All Things Alpine. Sure. So this is a film that is um, shot completely in the San Juan Mountains, of course. And it is a piece on essentially the ruggedness of these mountains how they're changing, and how implementing leave no trace principles can really help to keep them rugged and wild and can slow down some of these changes that are happening um, and how we as individuals really can make a difference. Um, and the fact of the matter is that we can. Um, so it's kind of a little bit about um, the, the principles of leave no trace and the passion that we as San Juan residents have for these very special places. Um, I've been working with the San Juan Mountains Association to interview some of their wilderness rangers um, and speaking with some biologists who work with animals down here. Um, And then working with Leave No Trace to kind of throw in what they have to say about all this and what they have to teach. Um, And it's a really, really simple film, but hopefully it'll have a big impact because it comes from the heart. How do you pair that message in a way that can influence the big inf- the big um, entities that are pushing tourism and you know the people that show up from Texas that maybe <laughs> don't know any better and they're just super excited to ride their razors up <laughs> into Silverton and like crush the Alpine and fill it full of noise. And you can tell my opinion about uh, ATVs (laughs) is pretty high, but um, I'm curious, how do you, how do do you, uh, (laughs) how do you get to those people, I guess, in a way that actually has a meaningful impact? So my tactic has always been to kill them with kindness. Um, I, it it isn't always super easy, um, but I think, I think a knee jerk reaction so many people have to leave no trace in these kinds of principles is one person can't make a difference. One group of people can't make a difference, but you can. And so I think um, I I try really hard to be really approachable, even when I don't want to be, um, and to be really um, gentle, but firm in my messaging that these are the right things to do. And these are the reasons why. And these are the reasons why you as an individual can make a big impact and that impact can be positive or it can be negative. And it's generally like quite black and white in that regard. And um, I've done some speaking engagements kind of surrounding my film um, and my work in places that are maybe a little bit outside of my comfort zone, maybe some cowboy bars and that kind of scene. Um, to kind of say, you know, like, hello, I'm not the normal person you would see here. Um, but this is so important to me. And I think we have so much more in common than not. And I think that we're all here because we absolutely love these places. And we absolutely want them to stay the same. So let me show you a couple of really easy things you can do to ensure that that's the case. Also, 
a lot of people that are coming up uh, from these places with their four wheelers have a ton of money and they don't know what to do with it. And so if you can kill them with kindness, they will give you their money and then you can give their money to conservation. I love that. Um, <laughs> it's, it's a win-win. I'm a bad storyteller, so I'll try to keep this short. <laughs> I've never told this story in the podcast before, but it's because it's um, it's kind of taken on new meaning for me in the last couple of weeks. I uh, recently went back home to visit my parents and I grew up in Colorado Springs. And okay. when, when I was growing up, almost every weekend in the summer, we would go about an hour and a half, two hours uh, west on Highway 24 up to uh, an area near Terriol Reservoir. Um, Gorgeous. And near Wilkerson Pass area. And um, I remember this one time we went up there like on a Friday after work kind of a deal. I think I was probably like 10 or 11 years old. All the campsites that we normally go to were all filled up um, by people, with motorcycles and stuff. And... My dad knew about this other spot because he had hiked to it and we were driving up the road and he was like, let's just go up there. And he like second guessed himself, but he decided let's just go for it. And he drove his car like up a field. <laughs> with, there's no, there's no road. And it was like our special place that we go camping to all the time for years and years and years. And then about 10 years ago, he went back and the campsite was completely destroyed Oh, man. Um, and he just had an emotional, like, as he's telling me this, he started crying and he was like filled with guilt that he, because of him, this place that was so special is now forever ruined because of that bad decision to drive his car up there. And I think sharing stories like that and sharing pictures of kind of before and after and kind of like that, I think it can have an impact. I mean, he was, I mean, he's not a guy that cries and he was like, yeah in tears. And, you know, I mean, we had a couple of scotches, but <laughs> he was very upset by what he had done. And, and yeah, I'll never forget that, you know? So I think to your yeah. point, we, 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 we can make a difference in our actions. Yeah. And it's powerful. You know, all you, all you need is somebody to resonate with what you're saying or what you're doing. And, and it's amazing what one person resonating can create in their own community of people who maybe um, would be resistant to hearing this messaging from someone else. Um, so it's it's really cool when people can have those experiences, even if it's them breaking down or having a bit of a come to Jesus moment. Um, it It's really powerful. And sometimes it's the right person at the right time with the right group of friends that they can really directly impact. Yeah. Well, all right. Who would you recommend for the podcast? Who do our listeners need to learn more about? So I am going to recommend my friend Gretchen K. Stewart. Um, she is a conservation photographer up in the Cascades. And um, lately she has been sharing a bit with um, Nat Geo, which is so exciting, kind of for the whole world and for her. Her work is beautiful. Um, I would also recommend... Um, Nate Lube, who grew up in, I believe, Bailey or Conifer, um, and has a real respect for the mountains and does a fair bit of traveling. Yeah, those are my my two big recommendations. Um, I think all of the listeners would really, really appreciate both of their work. Perfect. Well, that's great. Uh, appreciate that. And uh, this has been a lot of fun. And I hopefully we can get together and have a beer and talk about how your adventures went in Vestal Basin. Absolutely. And if you ever want to join document part of the San Juans with me, I'd be more than happy to have you come along. Oh, absolutely. Well, thank you to Deirdre for joining me on the podcast for this great conversation. I hope everyone enjoyed it as much as I did. I am eager to see the fruits of your labor in your San Juan Mountains project. I also want to thank our most recent supporters on Patreon, which includes Amy Brooks and Bruce Couch. I really appreciate you both. You're getting me closer to my goal of reaching 200 supporters on Patreon. If you're listening and you can help out, I'd really appreciate it. Just take a second and go to patreon.com forward slash fstop and listen. Coming up next on the podcast is Karen Waller. 
Karen is a portrait and landscape photographer from Australia who makes quite interesting work. I had a wonderful time speaking to her and I look forward to releasing that episode. After that, we have Norman McCloskey. He's an awesome Irish photographer who owns his own gallery. And then we have our next Artist Asking Artist episode with David Thompson and Candy Watson. And after that, we have Martin Gonzalez, a photographer obsessed with rocks and small details. As a reminder, if you're a Patreon supporter at $10 or a month or more, you get access to all of the episodes early. Thanks to those of you who already support the show. You're the best. One last thing, we're coming up on episode 300. If you have any ideas for this episode, let me know. Okay, that's all for now. Thanks for stopping in, collaborating with us, and listening. See you next week. <laughs>